as well. First Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 23. We're going to be there. Let me, let me pray for us before we dive in uh, to looking at the scripture. Let's pray together. Father, we are we're so grateful for, uh, for your word. We're grateful that you have spoken and that you continue to speak. And we're so grateful that you, you, Jesus, you said you wouldn't leave us as orphans, but you would send us the Holy Spirit who would be our comforter, our counselor, and our teacher. And he would open up our eyes and he would instruct us and help us to see what we need to see. And so we pray that as we come to your word now that, Holy Spirit, you would, you would teach us. Uh, you would open up our eyes to see. You would, you would use your word now, Father, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to help us to give us a, a greater view of who you are and a clearer view of who we are, and that you would strengthen us as your people through your word. We, we need the quickening help of the Holy Spirit to shake off the dullness of our spirits and our spiritual blindness so that we, we want to see you and to unplug our ears, as it were, so we can hear your voice. And so we pray that you would speak to us now. Thank you that we can have great confidence that you will do this because you, you long to reveal yourself. You long to give of yourself. And so we pray that you would do that now for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here last week, uh, Dave, you'll remember Dave spoke on baptism. We wanted to spend a couple weeks where we were looking at um, two foundational um, sacraments, ordinances, uh, you can choose the, the title that you give them of uh, baptism and communion. We called them water and wine, and somebody asked me, why didn't we include bread? But, uh, because water and wine sounds more catchy than water, bread, and wine as the name of the series. So please just, you know, calm down. We understand what, uh, what you mean, but, and hopefully after today it'll be a fuller picture. Uh, and he spoke on baptism. If you missed that, message. Dave, I thought, did an excellent job of mapping out what baptism is about. And I, do, we wanna, I want to encourage you as well, if you haven't been baptized, um, to come and to come to the class after, after church today and hear more about it. You're not committing to get baptized by coming to the class. You're coming to find out more and get clear on it. And I would encourage you to be there. It's not going to take us forever, um, but it's a really, a really important thing. And we'd love to be able to baptize people next week who've done that. Um, this week I'm speaking on communion, and I wonder if you remember the first time you took communion. I wonder if you remember the first time that you, you took communion. I remember the first time I saw communion. The first time I saw uh, communion, I, uh, I grew up in and around a sort of a baptist kind of church, um, but I remember predating that. I don't have any memories of communion there. I think they used to do it when the kids weren't involved in the service, so I don't remember seeing communion or being part of communion in that church for years and years, but... Uh, I was staying with a friend of mine when I was really small. I must have been like six or seven, and he was a Catholic guy. Um, and we went off. I don't even know why I was staying at his house. Um, but, uh, I mean, other than being his friend. But, I mean, uh, now I'm making <laughs> this is way too much detail, but anyway. Uh, in the morning, off we went to church, and we went to Catholic church. I'd never been to Catholic church, and... Um, and I wandered in, and I'm not sure why we were in the church church and not in the Sunday school thing. I'd gone, I went a few weeks later again with him, and we ended up in the Sunday school, which was more like, I found out later it was like catechism stuff, so like Sunday school without the fun. Um, 
it was it was painful. I won't even lie. Uh, I'm sure it's improved, but back then I was just like, this is this is awful. The other church I'd been to had suites and songs, and they had none of that kind of stuff there. And uh, but we went into the main church kind of thing, and the first thing I noticed is like, this is my recollection. Please do not throw anything at me. That the people were washing their hands as they came in. Now, if you've never been in a Catholic church, I haven't been into many, but like there was something there where like people were. I don't know if it was a holy water kind of vibe thing. My seven-year-old mind is just thinking, my only other recollection is like when you go to the spur and you get like the finger washing thing for the ribs when you finish. Like I'm like, why is everyone washing their fingers before they come into the church? Like normally this should happen at the end. What is going to happen here? My my seven-year-old mind was totally confused. People were kneeling, standing, up, down, up, down, and then off. And then there was wafers and stuff. And I just... There was just this mess in my head of like, what is going on here? No one obviously explained anything because everyone knew what was happening. You know, how it is. Um, and that was my first time I'd seen communion happening. And completely confused, too terrified to ask any questions of, of my mates and his parents or anything like that. And went home and I was just like, no idea. Uh, and then I remember the first time I participated in an Anglican communion. So I grew up Baptist, you know, grape juice vibe. And then uh, when I was working with Youth of Christ, we traveled, went to lots of different churches, ended up in an Anglican church. This is the first time I'd ever, you know, it's a queue. Some of you grew up Anglican, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. So you queue, and off you go, off to the front, and the guy's got all the stuff and gives you the thing. And I, I, I was sick. Um, I had a sore throat. I had like a strep throat thing. I was dying. I literally, my throat was on fire during the whole service. And I'm just like, I'm hating my life. And then I see like, oh, we get to have a drink. Like everyone's having a sip of something. I'm thinking... Now's my chance. Like, I'm just going like, to take a massive glug of this juice, and I'm going to be fine kind of thing. No one bothered to warn me that the Anglicans don't play games with communion. <laughs> there's none of this Moni's grape juice nonsense. They've got the real deal stuff there, so there's Doug, you know. And at the time, I was a teetotaler, you know. I, wasn't, I didn't drink a thing there. I clap a massive swig of this stuff. I am like literally the Holy Spirit descended on me. <laughs> That's what it felt like. And I felt the fire of God proceed down into my belly. And I was just like, what just happened? I was like, staggered back to my seat, like totally confused. And I, luckily somebody on my team knew and could see this happening and didn't warn me. They wanted to uh, be able to debrief it with me later. That was my first experience of, and I don't know what your first experience of, of communion, whether you grew up in a religious like church school, um, whether you didn't grow up in anything when you grew up baptist or Catholic. I know some of you grew up Catholic and you've done all the different stuff. Today I want us to look a, a bit deeper, not so much at the forms of, communi- uh, of communion, of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, but at the concept of what it is, what are we doing when we come together to celebrate that, and then to dig into a little bit about what we feel about it here at Parkhurst and also how we practice it. But let's have a look and let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here. Uh, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church and he is sharing, as, as he'll say, he's sharing what he's received from the Lord, but he's mapping out basically what you see repeated again and again in the Gospels as we see Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. From verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. Let's ask, answer a few questions and then dig into six things that we see in this passage. Um, and I want you to keep thinking the whole time. The reason why we're doing this is because I want us to have a deeper, more life-giving experience of the Lord's Supper and of communion. And sometimes as churches, you just do things without really thinking through why do we do them. Then if you've paused long enough to think, why do we celebrate communion? Why do we do it as often as we do? What's happening when we celebrate, uh, when we celebrate communion? That was the point of baptism last week and now communion. So where does communion come from? Well, it's instituted by Jesus. It says there on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus interrupts this Passover meal, which is an annual celebration that the, God instituted with the Jews to remember the exodus from Egypt when God got them out of slavery in Egypt, every year they would have this Passover meal and they would go through all of these um, rituals and ceremonies and stuff and cups and all this kind of stuff. I'm not going to explain the whole thing, but that's the meal that Jesus is celebrating together with his disciples where he changes that and he says, right, okay, right now I'm breaking bread. This is going to be my body. You're going to eat this and do this in remembrance of me. And he's blessing one of the cups. They had multiple cups throughout the meal. He's saying one of the cups, he's blessing it. He's saying this this is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant's in my blood. And when you drink this, I want you to do this. Drink this together and remember me. And you proclaim my death until he comes again. That's what Paul says. Uh, Jesus institutes this. But it has its foundations in the Passover meal. The Passover meal was celebrated only once a year. Communion is different. And we'll talk a little bit later about how regularly we should celebrate communion. There's a lot of variety and um, differing disagreement uh, about communion. Let me say this as well, that if you've read any church history or just you know something, it's strange that a meal that Jesus gave to his church and commanded us to observe has been one of the things that has ripped Christians apart. And instead of being something that unites us at a fundamental level, it, is, it has divided Christians with such intensity. You read some church history, the Christians have put other Christians to death because they've disagreed on the theology and the practice of, uh, of communion, which sounds crazy, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It should sound crazy. You're right. That's the right answer. It sounds crazy. Don't just say, I think this is a trick question. Uh, should I agree with him or not? So, yes, it is crazy. But Christians are crazy and we do crazy things. And we make mountains out of molehills. This is not a molehill. This is a big deal. Communion is a big deal. But it is meant to be something that unites us and not and doesn't divide us. And so while I'm going to point out some of the things that are specific to my own views, 
and the way we do things here at Parkhurst, my heart is not that we divide and separate ourselves from other people and say, well, we do it perfectly here. We don't do it perfectly here. Um, I don't think we're ever going to. And it's meant to be something that should unite us. And you may have differing views and different opinions to even what we do as a church and what I want to put in forward today. But again, you've got to remember, this is meant to bring us together and show our unity, display our unity rather than cause us to have divisions amongst us. What are some of the things that we see in this passage? Well, the first thing is that Jesus commands us to observe this. We're commanded to observe it. This is not a suggestion that Jesus gives. So like, look, if you've got time in your service, sneak this in. That's not what he's saying. He says, you do this in remembrance of me. And every time you do it, ours are going to be on me. Your focus is going to be on me. We're going to get to that now. This, this should be, if you... If you're here, you'll see we, at the moment our pattern is to do communion every second week. If you ever move from this church and you go somewhere else, you go to another church, and that church never practices communion, you should keep looking for another church. Okay? You, to be part of a spiritually healthy and biblically obedient church means that as a regular pattern of the life of that church, you celebrate communion. Because it's an instruction from the Lord to do that. It's not a suggestion. It's like, look, use it, don't use it. Try other stuff. Hand out free sweets. See if that grows the church and builds pe- people. You know, Hand out hot dogs and you know, donuts after the service. That'll strengthen people. It's like, no, no, no. Communion strengthens people. Communion is a sign. It's an it's a ordinance. It's an instruction from Jesus for us to observe this. The second thing is that it's a remembrance of Christ. He says, do this in remembrance of me. This is, this is super important. Some of these drums I'm going to beat a bit louder this morning than others. What are you thinking about when you participate in communion? Don't, don't, I mean, if you're new here, when I ask questions, I get asked lots of questions just to keep you thinking and make sure you're not sleeping. But don't shout out the answers. It's not really sort of what everyone does, just... Uh, I don't want to embarrass you if you are new here. You, like, there's a long pause and you shout something out. Like, what are you thinking about during communion? What's going through your mind? Where's your attention? Where's your focus? I, I, mean, I have to confess that sometimes my mind is all over the place. You know, and sometimes it's an occupational hazard. I'm thinking, why did the guys on the coffee team crunch the matzah so small? It's like flakes in this thing, yeah, man. I, you're like, I'm not, my mind's not thinking about Jesus. I'm thinking, I need to have a meeting with these eggs and just chat. Like, look, people can't even pick this stuff up. It's like, you've got to like, cr- there's crumbs in this thing, yeah. Like, I've spilled juice on my hand again. I'm like, oh, well, there's run out. Or are the people going to have at the back? Jesus is the last thing in my mind. I'm busy wondering about all these other things. What's going through your mind? Oh, there's somebody there. Huh? They didn't say how's it to me earlier. Marching up and down, we're wondering who's giving us a squiff look, or maybe you're checking somebody else out, and you're thinking, I need to make sure I go and say hi afterwards or whatever else. Your mind and your heart, you're a sinner. These things will invade your mind and your thoughts sometimes. The point of this is for us to come again and have a look at the Scripture. Say, Jesus says, you do this. When you do this, the remembrance should be on me. And here's the thing. The remembrance is not on you. It's easy to make us the centerpiece of communion and not Christ. It's like sitting there saying, oh God, God, you love me so much. You love me so much. You love me so much. Yes, it is true that the Lord does love us so much. And he does love us. But the focus and your eyes in communion should not be on ourselves. They should be on him. It's a remembrance of him. It's like, yes, this is how you have loved me. But my heart, my mind, my eyes, my thoughts 
are, and my affections are set on you. I'm, I'm remembering you here, Jesus. I'm remembering what, what you had to go through for me. I'm remembering what you have accomplished for me. The focus is not me. The focus is you. And when you get your attention and your heart and your eyes bent in the right direction in communion, that's when it serves its purpose of strengthening you. When your eyes are on yourself and you're just thinking about your own sin and your unworthiness and how you don't deserve this and stuff, you get into a bit of a spiral and communion is no longer having its effect and its intended purpose for us. It's a remembrance of Christ. Let me just say this quickly that I was reading some church history book in the holidays and the guy was making an interesting observation about how architecture has shown what churches think of communion in the, in the recent history. I mean, we meet in a school hall and I know you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna give me a hard time for this already now. So what is in the middle of our church? Meli. No, no, Meli's not in the middle. Meli's in line with the middle. This is in the middle. This preaching stand. We don't have a proper pulpit yet. We'll get there eventually for Pete. Uh, Pete, wants, Pete wants a pulpit, and eventually we'll bless him on his birthday with a pulpit or something. But the pulpit is in the middle of, the, of this church. Where's the communion tables? They're on the side and at the back. If you, if you go and visit some other churches, or you wind your mind back, or you go to some really old churches, you'll find that in the middle of the church is a table, a communion table. And on the side... Sometimes stuck up on the wall, depending on uh, which church you come, is the pulpit. You know, like you climb some weird rickety stairs and like the oak speaks down from on high. I actually think that's not a bad idea completely. Like it just adds a lot of drama to the message. Like if you're just lacking some points, like you can just yell at the people from like dangling on the wall. But the, how the architecture of churches has changed. We've taken communion, which for many hundreds of years was at the center of church life. And we've moved it to the side and we've put personalities, people, and the word. I'm not saying that the word of God shouldn't be at the center of, of a service. I think we should have a table and have the pulpit here. And they should share because the word points to Christ and the table displays Christ and is there. But you look at lots of churches, they're more, they're more psyched about having a band running up and down. They need tons of space for the band to run up and down and lights to display the band, but the communion table is like, it's history. History. And it says something. The architecture, it's communion has been moved to the side, and that shows you the importance of what people think and validate and place weight on in a church. The remember, point two, remembrance is of Christ. Thirdly, we should use the elements that are mentioned. Now, this is where some of you and I are going to part ways. I remember... Uh, Claire and I did lots of youth ministry in our younger days, um, and we used to go away a lot over Easter. Um, and I remember one time going down to Durban, and we were there for Easter. Um, Sunday morning, we had a whole bunch of guys on the beach, and a couple of guys thought it would be a cool idea to celebrate communion. We didn't have anything except a bar one and a two liter of Coke. I don't exactly know why we had a bar one and a two liter of Coke, and that was it. Like, not even any chips or anything like that. That was just sort of what was lying around in someone's bag. Somebody thought, like, spontaneously, let's celebrate communion, Easter, you know? Like, so, like, we, we consecrated this bar one and, and the Coke, and then we broke it amongst us, and we shared and drank. And the whole time I'm thinking, we're so cool. Like, look at us. Like, we just, we can turn anything into communion. 
And, and I look back now in absolute horror. And I thank God that he didn't take my life on that beach uh, on that morning, because he probably should have. Okay, I, there's, only so much that you, there's only so much of consecrating of a bar one that you can do. I love bar ones, but you cannot turn a bar one into, into bread and use it for communion. Jesus takes bread and breaks it and takes wine and gives it. Okay, and now, like I said, this is not a hill that I'm 100% going to die on, but I take significant injuries for. I think you've got to use bread and you've got to use wine or a variety of wine. I'm, I'm, I lean more to wine than grape juice, and you'll hear that a while. Um, but I think you've got to use the stuff that Jesus used. Because the theme of bread in Scripture and the theme of wine in Scripture, they have more weight in them than using bar one and Coke. It's not a good substitute because bread means something in Scripture. You go and you read all the way through your Bible from the bread of presence in the Ark of the Covenant to manna that God gives. To Jesus, Foswood saying he's the bread of life. Bread, bread, bread. Wine. Wine is a symbol. God has given wine, he says, is to gladden men's hearts. It's a sign of abundance. Jesus' first miracle is water into too much wine. Wine is a sign of abundance and of blessing and of goodness. And that in God there is an abundance. It's not that Jesus wants to just have a woohoo kind of a party so he overcaters on the wine. It's a, it's a miracle that shows the abundance that's in God and the abundance that's in the new covenant that's in Jesus. When you switch out the wine with a grape juice or with Coke or whatever else, you're communicating something different. And again, I said, there's not a hill that I'm going to die on kind of thing. But I think when we celebrate communion, we should use bread and wine or a derivative of wine. I'm still halfway. Behind. I think we're going to probably bust out the wine sooner rather than later around this place. Because I'm all the Anglicans are like, thank you, Jesus. Revival has come to this place. Yeah, all the Baptists are like, I'm gone. I'm out of here. Bunch of drunkards. You know, don't worry, we're gonna, not going to give you little thimbles probably still, so you can't get too excited. But you've got to use the elements because the elements communicate something more. When you're sitting there breaking a bar one apart, I know our hearts are in the right place. We want to partake in, but it's just not the same thing. Because they're elements, they're earthy things. Isn't this something amazing about how God has wired these things? He's taken regular things, bread and wine and water, and in these two ordinances that we've looked at this week, he's given us things that can really help you enter in to understand and experience spiritual truth and reality. Like Dave said last week, when you get baptized, it's an outward expression and demonstration of something that's happened internally, spiritually. You've, been, you've died with Christ and you've been raised to life in him. Now, we could just say that about you and say, you're a Christian. You've been baptized into Christ and raised to life in him. Yes! And you should say, Amen. But God, in his wisdom, has given us a command, I believe, to get baptized so that you would experience something in your humanness, an earthy, real thing, where you get dumped, I mean, gently, you get lowered under the water. Maybe we should start doing it more forcefully, like it would just add. But we get put under the water and you come up like, it's not, 
you know, that can't happen to you without you noticing it. And you know it, and you're standing there, and you're wet, and your hair's all a mess and stuff if you have hair. Um, if you have hair, and, and like you know that you've been baptized, and people can see it, and it's something you can, you can feel the temperature of the water. It's just, it's such an earthy, real thing. It's not just, yes, you have been baptized. It, God gives us something to celebrate, to say, yeah, I'm part of this community. I'm together with Christ, union with him, identity, everything Dave spoke about last week. And when it comes to communion, it's the same thing. We could just sit around and all just remember Jesus and say, oh, amazing, he died on the cross for us, it's brilliant. Brilliant, wonderful, thank you God for doing that. Wonderful, Jesus, body broken, blood shed, amazing. But Jesus gives us an instruction in and in, yeah, sorry. Jesus gives us an instruction to eat and to drink, not to sit and to think. He says, eat and drink. Don't just sit and think. Take something and put it in your mouth and chew it and eat it and swallow it and then drink something. And as you do that, you're remembering and you participating and you are communing with Christ in that. It's not just a, a mental thing. We're doing something with real earthy things that God has given us and I think there's, there's sovereignty, there's wisdom, there's genius in that stuff. We should use the elements mentioned. Fourth thing is that it's a proclamation of the gospel. This is what Paul says. It's a proclamation of the gospel. Every single time we do this, we're declaring the gospel. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. The very act of going through communion preaches. It's unique to Christianity because Christ is unique to Christianity. This is a unique thing. You don't find other religions celebrating what we do because they don't have a savior who's done what Christ has done. And it's, it preaches. Think of somebody coming in who's got no experience of Christianity. No background. They didn't go to an Anglican school. Nothing. They're from a different world religion or something. And they come in amongst us and they're like, what's going on here? What's that guy doing up there with bread and God, talking about blood and bodies and all this, everyone gets up and they go or they go to the front and they kneel, whatever the vibe is in the different church. And they're watching, what is happening in this place? Everyone seems to be doing it. It's not like some people are left out. Everyone's doing it together and they're all participating in this thing. It's a unique thing that shows our togetherness. And it's preaching, it's preaching Jesus and his work and the gospel and it's good news. And because it preaches the gospel, it changes the feel. Okay, this is important. Because it preaches the gospel, it changes the feel. So I grew up, I grew up being told that when it's communion, that's the time you'd be serious and sad. And the more sad, the better. Because you're a sinner, you're the sinning schmuck who sent Jesus to the cross, you should feel very bad about what it cost him. No smiling, no joy, no nothing. You feel Oops. You feel bad about what you did, and you just be blooming grateful that you have a savior, and you just eat and drink in quiet, and then be done with it, kind of thing. That's kind of the tradition and the vibe that I grew up very quiet, you know, back to your seat, all on my own kind of vibe. And I'm not saying that some of those elements are wrong, but there is wired into this a preaching of the gospel, and the gospel is essentially what. Good news. It's good news. It should induce in your heart a party. It should induce in your heart a party because it's a declaration again over your life of what Jesus has done. 
the end of it, yes, there's reflection. We're going to get to that now. There's sober assessment of your sin. But the declaration over you is that you are forgiven in Christ, that he has borne the penalty and he has forgiven you and made you new and cleansed you. Hallelujah. Forever you are his and you are with him and your sin is atoned for. Hallelujah. Party, party, party in your heart every time you finish communion. Not sitting there, I'm a worthless worm. I'm so sorry. The end of communion is a party. That's what we do. We declare. It's a proclamation of the gospel and it should change the feel. I like the term joy-filled repentance. Joy-filled repentance. Because there is in communion, and we'll see here, there is a repenting sometimes. It is needed often in us. We come back to the Lord again and again and say, oh, that's why you need to do this regularly. There's a coming, there's a returning back to the Lord. Lord, I've sinned, I've strayed again, I've loved myself, I've loved these other things, I've squandered your grace, I'm coming back again, I'm repenting, I'm turning back, but it's not like I'm a worthless worm. There's joy undergirding all of that because we're not re-entering into a relationship, we're not climbing the stairs of our good works, coming back to God, we're just reminding ourselves again of the truth that we are in Christ and the gospel is sufficient and God has done everything that you most need. You are forgiven, you are cleansed, you are his. I'm re-preaching to myself as I celebrate communion. The fifth thing is that it needs to be approached soberly. Paul says to the Corinthians, that's partly why this ends up in this letter to the Corinthians, because they had lost their way around the communion meal. They had massive... The differences in the church, they had rich people, poor people, and what was happening is the rich folks were getting there early, and they were drinking and eating all the communion wine and food, and like getting on their ear, basically. So that's your argument for grape juice versus wine in the communion, uh, in some ways. Like, you can't get drunk if it's Moni's, sparkling, you know, there's only so much of that stuff you can drink. Uh, the guys were rushing in there, and they weren't waiting for each other. There was a hierarchy kind of thing. They were preferring the rich and the wealthy guys. And they weren't, they weren't doing what the Lord's Supper was meant to do, is unite them and bring them together in a celebration of Christ and pull them together. It was a, something that was dividing them. Some of were getting drunk and other guys were gorging and eating too much of the stuff and others were going without. And he writes this letter as a corrective to them. He said, no, 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 no. Guys, you're doing this in an unworthy manner. And in so doing, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. And now he winds it up. He says, the reason why, some of you, he uses the term fallen asleep. He says, some of you are sick and some of you have died because you have stuffed around with the Lord's table. I mean, that should just cause you to sit upright and be like, right, it's time to pay attention. It's not that we eat and drink as unworthy people. And so we're terrified of coming near the table. So like, what if I'm unworthy? I don't want God to judge me, discipline me, strike me down dead. I better stay away from it. It's not that. There's a way in which we are always unworthy in coming to the Lord's table. Nothing makes us worthy outside of Christ in coming to participate in communion. But you can celebrate or partake in communion in an unworthy way. It can be too casual, too flippant, not soberly assessing ourselves, messing around basically with this glorious meal and remembrance and ritual, if you want, that Christ has given us. If we're flippant with it, that is, that is what I think means to deal with it in an unworthy manner. It's, we're not giving it its pride of place in our church, in our hearts, the weightiness and the reverence for it. We're, we're, we're stuffing around during communion. 
And we should only expect judgment from the Lord if we do that. According to the scriptures, if you're not dealing with it with the weight that it should and that Jesus himself gives it, we should be very careful. Approach it soberly. The last thing is it requires examination. It requires examination. And my personal um, feeling on this is that it requires more than about a minute before you get out of your chair. Most of my history in this is, okay, we're coming to communion now. Can everybody just... um, you know, spend some time before the Lord, check that you're in a good space, and then let's go. And now you're suddenly quickly thinking, is there anything God, like, I've had an average week, I mean, I haven't been there, I haven't shot the lights out, but I haven't, like, completely left the faith. Okay, cool, like, off I go, you know, like, take your flake and your thimble, and off you go, and, like, communion has been done, but has it been the life-giving meal that it's meant to be? And throughout church history, different Christians have done this in different ways. I think some of you would have hated to have lived in different centuries, uh, in different denominations. In some of the old Presbyterian history, they would send the elders around. They would only celebrate communion every few months and sort of tell the date like Melly does. The church picnic is happening on the 8th of March. It's like, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper on the 8th of March. And they'd spend a couple months leading up to that. The elders would go on rotation and personal visit in the few weeks before then, going around to everyone's house and go and visit Stella and Brian and say, right, is there anything you want to tell us, you two? Hmm? How's it going with the Lord? Anything with you guys? Anything like, and, and they'd have to confess and make right and have a thorough investigation of their life to make sure that they're okay to celebrate the Lord's Supper on that day that it was then being done. Now, I'm not saying we're going to do that. I don't think you should do that. I don't think, that's, I don't think it's right. Um, but I do think examination is under-celebrated in our church and in Christian circles. When was the last time you sat down and had a thorough assessment, sober assessment of your life, of your loves, of your pleasures, of your passions, of your waywardness of your heart, of your sin, done and undone, you know, committed and, and things that you should have done that you know you shouldn't have and things that you should have done that you didn't do and laid all those things out before the Lord and said, Lord, this is me. This is me. This is a condition of my heart. Would you give me grace? I'm a wandering sinner. I do love you, but this is me. And I come expectantly to receive grace again. That's an examined life. You come to the Lord. You come to the table to celebrate that the blood covers that the body was broken to forgive that mess it's not just like yeah i think i had a an okay week off i go again there's nothing massive looming in my life toiling the soil of our hearts to make sure that we're getting everything out we have short accounts of the lord and we can really really enjoy communion you know that story account in the scriptures of the woman who's forgiven much and loves much you're worshiping jesus and jesus says those who've been forgiven much forgiven little love little those who've been forgiven much love much it's not we've all been forgiven the same it's your awareness of how much you've been forgiven that affects your joy and your appreciation of christ i want to encourage us to be better at examining ourselves you know not getting all inward self-analysis kind of stuff but just bringing our hearts openly before the lord and say Holy Spirit, would you search me? Would you, would you search me? You search the things that I can't see. Bring to mind my waywardness, my other loves. Lay them before me 
and let your grace cover them again. I'm bringing them to you so that you walk out the door knowing there's nothing between you and the Lord, unsaid, undone, unforgiven as it were, fully, fully celebrating the grace that flows over us. I've already spoken about how often we should do it. I, the last thing I want to say before we spend a bit of time reflecting and going into that is what is happening in communion. This is where churches really and Christians really lose their way um, in differences. I mean, what's happening in communion? And you can see if you've been a part of different churches that we're sort of more of a, what would we'd be a low, a low church. Uh, Protestant, we're not Catholic. I think Catholics and Protestants parted ways over this many, many years ago. If you grew up Catholic, you'll know that communion there is a much, much bigger deal. They believe in a fancy word called transubstantiation, where what you're taking and what you're drinking is actually the body and the blood of Christ. It's not grape juice and matzah. It's not a remembrance kind of thing like you are. That's why you... You know, you need a priest there and it has a very different feel to the whole thing and everything needs to be finished up. We don't just chuck the matzah, you know, in the bin. The priest has to consume everything because you're dealing with the body and the blood of Christ. And they have different ways of explaining how that happens. I would, I would say that we have parted ways with that view. That's not our view. We don't hold to the Catholic understanding of transubstantiation. This is still matzah and grape juice. This is not the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we do throw the matzah in the bin afterwards. I don't have to measure out everything here and drink 50 shot glasses of grape juice at the end because we don't want any of the blood to go to waste. That's not where we are um, theologically. That is a Catholic understanding. It's different to Protestant. But Protestants have also then, on a sliding scale, and at the end of the Protestants you'll find memorialists, they would call them uh, as a category, people who just think, this is just, just, this is just a memory thing. All we're doing here is remembering Jesus. There's nothing special about the grape juice, the matzah. There's no tangible, almost presence of the Lord in this. This is not an especially special time, communion. It is in some ways, um, it is special because we're remembering him. But there's nothing of a spiritual dynamic in this. Um, and guys on that end. And then in between, you'll find a whole range of, of different people. We don't have time to go into all of the nuances. And sort of where we find in ourselves is somewhere between a Catholic understanding and a memorialist view, where I think there's something more happening in communion than just a, a straight-up memory thing. Um, guys have a phrase called real presence. And I, um, this is the view I'm the most comfortable with, that as we partake here, Christ is amongst us. And there is a way in which we are drinking grape juice and we're eating matzah. And they remain grape juice and matzah for now. I think they're going to become bread and wine in the coming months because I think that's better. Don't you? Okay, maybe we'll stick with the grape juice and matzah, but we'll see. We'll probably take a vote on it, uh, see how many Anglicans we have uh, lurking in the place. But they remain those elements. Nothing changes. We, we, we don't say a prayer some incantation over them and they change their thing. They remain those things. And yet as we do this together as a church, in a spiritual way, Christ is amongst us and he is strengthening you through the partaking of communion. Are you with me? You are being strengthened in the eating and the drinking, not by the substance. You're not going to get much out of the grape juice and the matzah. That's not, it's not a physical strength. This is a spiritual strengthening because Christ is amongst us. That's why the Bible places such an emphasis on the soberness of approaching 
the communion time together. If it was just a memorial thing, I don't think it would be treated with such reverence and weight in the scriptures. I think Christ is amongst us when we gather together like this and we eat and drink. God, in this way, God is putting strength into you spiritually that doesn't come without doing this. That's why you're called not to neglect the Lord's table and to make right so that you can come. You can get spiritual strength through other graces, yes, prayer, solitude, reading your Bible, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, whatever else. But this is a particular one that God has given to us that you may not particularly feel different as you walk out, but God has spiritually strengthened you through a communion meal and sharing together. That's our view that God is amongst us in a very, very real way as we do this. And so that's why we should approach it soberly and yet joyfully. He is amongst us. This is real. And we leave strengthened, having eaten and drunk. We have been like, like food and drink strengthen you physically. This food and drink, body and blood, strengthen you spiritually. And you need spiritual strength. We could have a whole sermon on your need for spiritual strength, but that would be too much for today. I think we all know, we all feel our need, our lack, our emptiness. And so we come to God in communion and say, would you strengthen me again? I'm coming to feast, as it were, to drink and to eat and I want to be fed by you. Jesus, you're able to strengthen me in a unique way and I come soberly to sit and to do that and to celebrate what you've done on the cross.